Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. Again, today, two shows in a day, quite an achievement. Time flies. It's still August 24th. It's 2 p.m. on the West Coast uh, in California. A little more than a year ago, back in June 2020, I spoke to the uh, New York-based writer Casey Schwartz. Uh, she had a best-selling book, or she has a best-selling book, Attention, and we talked back in June 2020 about the fate of attention, her subject, her challenge, her opportunity, both in a literary, personal, psychological sense, about the fate of attention in the age of COVID. Well, the good news, if there is good news in the age of COVID, is that Casey Schwartz's best-selling book, Attention, A Personal History of Finding Focus or Trying to, is now out in paperback, a beautiful cover, very um, uh, attention-focused. If you can't if, if you can't notice the cover of Casey's new book, then I think you probably have a problem. And I'm thrilled that Casey is joining me from Brooklyn. Uh, Casey, we talked a year ago about the fate of attention in the age of COVID. You have uh, a new uh, section, a little epilogue, a, a COVID uh, epilogue in your book. Uh, how has the last year changed your opinion? about the fate of attention in the age of COVID? Andrew, I think when we spoke last summer, um, we may not have known it, but we were still in the sort of um, acute phase of shock and terror because it was such a, it was such a psychological adjustment. It was such a radical change to how we all thought about our lives and how we all thought about our personal safety. And if you remember, it was like sort of fashionable at that point for people to talk about their inability to focus and sort of say things along the lines of, I can't read anymore. And I can't, you know, sort of to, to sort of riff on that motif. They were stealing your shtick, Casey, were they? <laughs> no, I mean, my shtick is, you know, inspired by our universal plight which is that its attention is, is, has always been hard and it's, it's harder still now. But I think we're definitely in a new phase in terms of the pandemic itself and attention, which is that, you know, we've had a year and a half almost to adjust to these circumstances. And I think for me personally, I, I feel like it's, I've never understood the importance of being specific with my attention as much as I have in the last year. Um, and I and I'm curious. Do you do you feel like that applies to you too? Well, I have to say I've been quite productive this year. Perhaps because I've been locked at home, I haven't been able to go on airplanes or travel. And I find that traveling, which is another way I earn my income pre-COVID, giving speeches, uh, is a lot of fun. But it's a tremendous waste of time. And when you when you gain or lose eight or nine hours, uh, it's very hard to focus. So I've actually found the last year fairly productive, although I'm not sure 
whether one should always associate productivity and attention. Do you? Do you see these as the same things? I mean, I think, you know, they're definitely linked. Um, but attention is so personal and attention is so subjective. So it's hard to generalize in a way. I reread the book, Casey. It stands up. It's still an excellent read. You're a beautiful writer. Uh, and you begin, of course, well, not of course, for those people who haven't read it, you need to get it now. It's in paperback. There are even less excuses for not reading it. <laughs> but you begin with your relationship with, I guess we could call it a drug called Adderall. Remind our, our viewers, Casey, for those who aren't familiar with your story or your book about your a complicated relationship with Adderall. Sure, Andrew. Um, and thank you. Um, I I stumbled into um, the sort of the Adderall rabbit hole when I was 18 years old. Adderall is an amphetamine. It's prescribed for attention deficit disorder, and it has become truly ubiquitous in the United States. But when I first got to college, it was still not that because it had only been on the market for four years um and it and you know it was just a friend asked me if i wanted to try it i really didn't even know what it was and i tried it and i i sort of said to myself you know wow this is kind of the silver bullet that my life has been lacking because if i can if i can pay attention on demand which is what these pills kind of seem to promise, then I can master any subject that I might encounter, whether or not, you know, I really was interested or, or cared to. It was sort of like this, I felt it was like a shortcut to mastery. The, the book, um, Casey, is um, intimate, as all semi-autobiographies are. You're clearly from a a highly literary, highly accomplished family, a family which is very good at attention. Um, do you see your story as typical or exceptional? You were at Brown University, again, one of the top, most exclusive universities uh, in the world. Um, both your parents are, are highly accomplished uh, literary or artistic figures. What does your story tell people who haven't had your fortune? good fortune or perhaps bad fortune. I'm not quite sure. Oh, I think there's so many people who are vulnerable in exactly the same way that I, that I was and that I am. And there are so many people who want to succeed, um, you know, and sort of that's the whole problem and the seduction of a drug like Adderall. This is not a drug for people looking to drop out and reject the system that they're in. This is a drug for insecure, ambitious people looking to be, to achieve and to be sort of good and to burnish their gold stars, you know? Um, and so that's what sort of, that, that, that can really ensnare people who aren't out to become addicted to a drug. They're, you know, they have a different vision of themselves and they get into this drug and they suddenly realize, my God, I'm, I'm like, I'm addicted to amphetamine. Um, so I don't think it requires having, you know, literary parents, although in my case, I think, you know, yeah, I think that exacerbated things. What did your mother think of your book? You, you, you write again about how you describe her as being very different from you in the book, 
But in the acknowledgements, you thank her deeply and suggest, I think you used the word lodestar, or certainly she's your inspiration. What did she make of the book? Oh, I think she loved the book. I think she loved the book. And I, I don't think I describe her as being so different than me, Andrew, because um, I think um, often people say we're very similar. And in that, we both... Well, well what, what, what I mean by that is you pick up on her ability to concentrate and focus. But the irony, which was something that you 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 were and perhaps continued to aspire to. Yeah, I mean, and that's how I see her. But I think the the, the irony is, and if she were on this phone call, she might say that um, she has terrible concentration. You know, maybe we should call her up and check in. Um, <laughs> uh, Casey's mother, you're always welcome to be on the show. We can we can do our uh, we can do a therapy <laughs> session, Casey. Um, one of the things, as I, I suggested uh, over the last year, I've been doing a lot of interviews, and we've had a lot of conversations about the really the cultural crisis at the American University. We had Daniel Markovitz on uh, talking about how miserable the American elite are at places like Brown and Harvard and Columbia. Mm. We've had all sorts of um, all sorts of shows about how rotten the university system is. How really? your yeah, how your generation sort of captures the misery, the extreme competitiveness, the isolation. To what extent do you think your book reflects that, a more of a, 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 cultural, uh, a, a cultural narrative of your generation? Well, say a little more about um, Daniel Markovitz's main argument. Well, Dan, Daniel Markovitz, is, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, he's a professor at Yale Law School, and he basically argues that the American meritocracy has become so competitive that everyone in it, and I, I don't know whether I would include you, but the people who go to places like Yale and Brown and, and Harvard are, are miserable because they're being driven. They take tests from the age of five. They go to exclusive schools. Um, but it's not making them happy and it's not giving their lives meaning. Uh, moreover, this is another theme we've, we've covered uh, over the last few weeks, there aren't any jobs out there. Um, uh, William uh, Derisay, which will be on the show, uh, he wrote a, a piece in, the, in New York Magazine uh, last month suggesting yeah. that everyone's borrowing more and more money to go to master's programs in cinema or creative writing at NYU and Columbia, and nobody's earning any money. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious whether you see your book, Attention, as more of a, a generational statement or, or, or fairly unique to yourself. That's and I'm not suggesting you're part of that generation. I'm not suggesting even that you're miserable. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're not, Andrew. Um, well, no, I'm a huge fan um, of of um, William Derasevich's work, although I don't know exactly how to pronounce his last name. And I, I say Derasevich, you say Derowitz. Der what did you say? De well, I think I tried to avoid saying it, but but I did read his article. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely knew when I started writing this book how widespread these kinds of sentiments were because I had written about being addicted to Adderall in the New York Times in 2016. And I was flooded with, I mean, just inundated with emails from people just with exactly the same experience. I mean, I get these emails on five years later on at least a weekly basis. 
so I, I knew that I was I was speaking to um, a more universal situation than just my own experience with Adderall. Um, but I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. I hadn't really thought about it in connection with like the misery of the meritocracy. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. Well, perhaps we can get another book out of you, Casey, uh, on, the, um, uh, on the contradictions, the cultural contradictions of the American upper class. Uh, as I suggested, uh, I've been very busy doing interviews over the last year. I've had a lot of fun. And it's always nice to have my interviewees come up in other interviewees' books. Uh, you end your book with some references to one of my favorite thinkers on technology, uh, Sherry Turkle. She has a new book out, The Empathy Diaries. I've often referred to that in the show. And of course, she is the author of, of many classics on our complicated relationship with technology, including Alone Together, Reclaiming Conversation, and The Second Self. Tell me a little bit about why you reached out to Sherry and, and, and how she brought some wisdom to, to what has happened over the last year. I'm a huge, huge fan of Sherry Turkle, and I absolutely loved her book, The Empathy Diaries. Um, it is beautiful. Yeah, um, I loved it too. I, it, it really reflects another Sherry. I didn't know of that, Sherry. It was so startling, didn't you find? Yeah, it's a memorable book, and um, sh she's so brutally honest about herself. Yeah, I mean, that book brought me to tears. Um, but um, Very different I, upbringing to you, though, uh, Casey, from a, a much more um, moderate, uh, fa you know, much uh, uh, had fewer advantages uh, in economic or cultural terms. Definitely. I mean, she's so, I mean, it's stunning. Like she, she slept on a cot in between her grandparents in a one bedroom apartment with her extended family all jammed in for the first decade of her life, I think. So, I mean, it's, it's really unbelievable. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like there's so many situations where I've dialed Sherry to find out what she thinks because... Um, the I other just... nice thing about Sherry is that she's remarkably accessible. She always has time for people. But, uh, yeah. but uh, what, what, did she, what has or what can Sherry teach you and us about our experience in the pandemic? You, you end with a, a series of conversations you had with her while she was in... Uh, was it uh, not Providence, but uh, one of one of the islands uh, uh, in New England? Yeah, I think she was in Provincetown. Yeah, Provincetown. Um, but we spoke at the very beginning of the pandemic, and then we spoke about eight months later because um, I was writing about her actually for the Times um, and her memoir. Um, but I just remember that at the beginning, I was desperately trying to understand almost like what mental recourse do we have, you know, right now, April, May, 2020, what can we do with our attention so that we're not just in this horrible, traumatized, reactive state? And, you know, I just, I, what, what, what really struck me then was, was her sort of saying that it was kind of a little bit aspirational to imagine like channeling a higher, you know, concentration or a higher focus because that was that was my hope um and then when we spoke again you know almost a year had passed and we spoke about how 
this is an opportunity to be so much more deliberate with where we put our attention. Um, and we've sort of had a year of living on screen and we know in a newly visceral way what are its limitations. And now as we re-enter the world, although it's sort of not clear now, is it Andrew that we're doing that, um, we can do it with a new consciousness um, and not just sort of in a trance turn to our devices by default. What's your relationship been with your devices over the last year, Casey? Have you found yourself um, more dependent on them or have you liberated yourself from your phone and your iPad and your computer? In the beginning, I mean, like everybody, I was clamoring for, you know, that sense of connection online and, and the information to understand, you know, wh what is happening. Um, but I did find that by this past spring, I just, I took social media, I just deleted it from my phone. It just sort of hit a boiling point because I think without the fullness of normal social life, it's particularly horrible and corrosive to just be sort of on social media without that antidote of like real human in the flesh yeah. interactions that nor that, you know, nothing is exactly normal online. It's not like the way that people talk to each other on Twitter is not the way that people talk to each other in life. And I think it's, it's really easy to fortunately, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just so mean. Um, and but it's also so banal. And, and I use that word carefully. Um, I, I have to admit, over the last year, I found Twitter more and more unbearable. I choose, I, I avoid it like the plague now because it's just depressing to to go on and see people of my generation, a slightly older generation, make themselves look so foolish and be so repetitive and annoying and boring. So, yeah. Another of the characters, Casey, who has come up, who's in your book, one of the starring figures actually in your book, is Dr. Carl Hart. Uh, his book, Drug Use for Grownups, is quite controversial um, and, and I found him a, a fascinating interview. Um, do ha, Has the last year changed your opinion on Hart's position about the legalization of drugs? Um, why, well, why would it have? I'm asking you, Casey. Oh, okay. Because I thought you had a sort of like, like a, was there something particularly relevant about the pandemic? I mean, I found Dr. Hart's book interesting. Um, I, you know, I think he's really right. And it's urgent to point out how destructive um, the war on drugs has truly been and how perverse so many of those drug policies are. Um, so I don't know that I was ever against the legalization of drugs. Um, um, my sense, though, in your writing on Hart, you had a, a degree of ambivalence about his position on drugs. Is that fair? Maybe I misinterpreted. I, think, I, know, I think I know what you're picking up on, which is when I went to interview him in 2016 at Columbia, um, I think I was struck and or sort of surprised by how what I felt what was sort of his casual response about the use of Adderall. Um, and um, I'm, yeah, but I'm, I'm not, I'm, it, but of course Adderall is a legal substance. So it's not really about, you know, the drug policies, which, which I don't disagree with him on. What about the issue of um, race and 
what has happened over the last year. I know this is not necessarily the focus of your book. When I talked to Carl Hart, he quoted uh, James Baldwin on the legalization of drugs um, and its racist undertones. Yeah. What's your opinion of the last year, Black Lives Matter, um, and America's attempt in some ways to come to terms with its racial racist history? We've had a number of shows about that. I'm not, uh, I know that it's not something that you write about in necessarily focus on in your book, but I'm curious as to your take on that. Well, I think it, it was extraordinary how, and in some ways the pandemic, it, it's sort of relevant to my subject of attention because in some ways the pandemic allowed us to turn our, our collective attention to mm. this urgent, urgent um, issue that we, you know, that we have to deal with in America. Um, so I think I think that might be why you're bringing it up, Andrews, that it was sort of this this moment where you know, last May and June, we all witnessed and we all saw. And it was sort of, it was like this, this, the attention shifted in this new way. And that was extraordinary. We're in the midst, of course, today of the Afghanistan crisis. Uh, Joe Biden has been brought down to earth. Do you see any impact on attention itself? with the current disappearance, at least, of Donald Trump, uh, perhaps the least attentive president or perhaps even person in, in, in history? Oh, um, I think there was such a desire on the part of so many when Trump left office to take a break from paying attention and this feeling like I've, you know, uh, I've had to track you know, all of Trump's, you know, odious statements and, and behaviors for four years. And, you know, now Biden's in and I can sort of give my attention a break. Um, but I, we're seeing that that, you know, isn't true. He seems a little inattentive, doesn't he, Joe Biden? I'm, I'm wondering whether he could do with a little bit of Adderall. <laughs> um, no comment, Andrew. No comment. Well, Casey, you've limited me to 25 minutes. So let's end on some um, su some suggestions from you on further reading. You you had a piece in Lit Hub uh, last year, five books to read during the pandemic. Uh, it's a lovely piece, as all your pieces are, but perhaps you might remind us of the books that you think we should be reading, perhaps to recapture attention. In, in our age of COVID, it doesn't seem to be going away. However hard we will it away, it's still there. Oh, there's a wonderful book called Wrapped by Winifred Gallagher for anyone who really wants to plunge into the subject of attention and, and sort of the existential stakes of it, which is, you know, that attention helps shape our lives. What about the other four, though? You had a, a couple of some, some interesting. I don't well, know if you remember. I hesitate to say, you know, with a straight face, like, you know, go out and read David Foster Wallace, The Pale King, even though I loved it. And I certainly think that it that it treated, you know, attention in this profound way. How does he hold up in our age of COVID, David Foster Wallace, what would he be making of this if he was around? I wish he were around. I'd love to know. Well, Casey Schwartz, it's as always an honor to talk your new book. Well, it's a new old book. It's out in paperback, Attention, 
a personal history of finding focus or trying to. Um, is a wonderful read, and congratulations on the book. Uh, are you working on a new book, by the way, Casey? Um, yeah, sort of, sort of. Sort of. That's what writers do. They sort of write on other books. When's that out? Um, no plans. No plans, Andrew. And does it have um, does it have a, a subject? Is it is it connected with attention, or are you now in our post attention? Are you in your personal post attention economy? Radical departure. Radical departure. Well, I hope I'll get an exclusive on the new book. Uh, Casey uh, Schwartz, as always, an honor, a pleasure. Keep well, keep fighting, keep focusing on attention, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. I would love it.